0: One of my favorite television shows as a kid was called That's Incredible. Yes. So Gregory remembers that show. Anybody else remember that show? Yes. It was an awesome show. I see all, everyone here is looking at me like, what are you talking about? So Google it when you get home. Not now. Well, you could do it now if you wanted to. But, and, and just check it out. It was a great show. Fran Tarkenton, John Davidson, Kathy Lee Crosby were the co hosts. Uh, and they would, either, they would either show a video or have someone in studio that would perform an amazing stunt or showcase an unusual talent. And then at the conclusion of a particularly amazing segment, the camera would pan the studio audience, and they would all say in unison, that's incredible. And it was. At least it was to a nine-year-old boy watching it with his dad and his brothers. I was mesmerized by it. I was all in with this show. And one of the regulars on the show was a guy named Mr. Escape And as his name suggests, he was an escape artist, and he would come onto the show, and he would escape from a pair of handcuffs or from a straitjacket, or usually there was fire involved. Um, I think most people have heard the name Harry Houdini. He uh, tops the list as the most famous escape artist in history. I think he's possibly a little more well-known than Mr. Escape. Uh, but Houdini would perform these magnificent escape, uh, escape acts. Perhaps his most publicized escape acts was in 1912 when his hands were locked in handcuffs, his legs were put in leg chains, he was put inside this wooden crate, and the crate was nailed shut, and then they tied a rope all the way around the wooden crate and then weighed it down with 200 pounds of lead and then dropped it in the East River in New York. And in 57 seconds, he escaped. You know, we're fascinated by escape acts. And the more difficult the act, the better. It's not enough just for Houdini to escape from a pair of handcuffs. That's boring. That doesn't get ratings. Nobody's going to watch that. You got to add the iron chains. You got to nail the crate, rope it up, weigh it down, throw it in the river. The more difficult the circumstances, the more brilliant the escape. And that brings us to our text this morning in Acts chapter 12. I have titled my message this morning, The Great Escape. If it's true that the more difficult the circumstances, the more brilliant the escape, then the escape detailed for us by Luke here in Acts chapter 12 may be the most brilliant escape in all of history. This escape, once you learn all the details, will make you say, that's incredible. Let me describe for you just how difficult these circumstances were for Peter. Peter. First of all, in verse 1, we learn that we're dealing with King Herod. And that's not good. So already, Peter's in a bad spot because you don't want to have to deal with one of the Herods. History tells us that dealing with a Herod only ends in one way, and that's with a violent sword. Herod the Great, the most famous of the Herods, ruled during the time of the birth of Jesus. He was the one who received the wise men from the east and had all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who were two years and younger massacred. That was Herod the Great. He was married ten times and had lots of kids. One of his sons was Herod Antipas. He became the ruler of Galilee. Herod Antipas married his brother's wife, Herodias, and then consented to the beheading of John the Baptist. He was also the Herod that Jesus spoke with on the night of his crucifixion. Now, the King Herod in our text this morning in Acts 12 is King Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great and the nephew of Herod Antipas. Are you following the family tree? There's lots of Herods. Now, get this, Herod Agrippa's dad, so our guy in Acts 12 is Herod Agrippa. His dad, who was Herod Antipas' brother and Herod the Great's son, was murdered by Herod the Great. So there's Herod Agrippa's backstory. Our king here, King Herod, his father was murdered by his grandfather. Like I said, Herod's only know one way of dealing with people, and it always involves a sword. And so in verse 1, Luke tells us it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now listen to how this verse reads literally in the Greek. It reads, King Herod laid his hands on some from the church to do evil to them. That's literally how it reads. That word translated to do evil can also mean to do serious harm to someone. Hence the translation persecute. So this is not going to end well. Herod has just recently been named king of this realm, and his first order of business was to put his hands on the church, not to commune with them, but to do evil and violent harm. He'd already beheaded James. Now, just so you don't get lost, there there were two of the 12 apostles named James. You know, those of you that watch The Chosen know that on the show, they designate the difference between the two James. One's Big James and the other one's Little James. Well, this is Big James. This is Big James who's beheaded. He's the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. He's part of the inner circle of Jesus. Peter, James, and John. And Herod had him beheaded, seemingly just to gain the favor of the Jews. No other reason. It's just a senseless act of violence performed by a bully and a tyrant. And he's just getting started. He saw that James' death pleased the Jews so much, and so he went after Peter. He had Peter arrested, put in the prison, but he had to wait until after the Passover before, verse 4 says, before bringing him out for public trial, which essentially means knowing King Herod's attention, that he planned to make this big public spectacle of Peter's execution. And so things are not looking good for Peter. The situation is dire, to say the least. In addition, listen to the level of security for Peter in prison. This is maximum security. And there's, there's good reason for that. If you recall, back in Acts chapter 5, the, the apostles had been put into jail in Jerusalem. But during the night, an angel of the Lord showed up and opened the doors and brought them out. And so, evidently, in an attempt to keep that from happening again, Herod puts four squads of four soldiers in charge of Peter. Sixteen soldiers in charge of one man. Now, just one squad of four would guard him at a time. Peter's right arm would be chained to one soldier, His left arm would be chained to the other soldier, and then two more soldiers in the squad would stand watch at the entrance to his cell. And then every three hours, they would change out to the next squad. And so they were only on three-hour shifts, rotating through the four squads. That way, the soldiers were refreshed and engaged, always ready. Perhaps Peter had been in prison this way for several days. Luke tells us in verse 6 that it was the night before Herod was going to bring him out and make a public spectacle of his execution. But the more difficult the circumstances, the more brilliant the escape. And Peter's circumstances are so difficult that even the great Houdini couldn't pull off this escape. However, what we learn in the narrative here in verses 7 through 11, Luke details for us Peter's great escape. And it's just one of the great narratives in all of Scripture. That includes an angel of the Lord waking him up and getting him dressed Removing his chains, leading him through the guards and out the prison, and then even opening the large iron gate to the city so Peter can enter into Jerusalem. It's it's an escape that's worthy of a that's incredible from the audience. And so we're going to do that this morning. Somebody was already on it over here. We're going to do that this morning. On the count of three... We're going to tell the Lord how incredible this escape is with a good that's incredible, all right? On the count of three, one, two, three. That's incredible. In fact, it's so incredible that in verse 12, when Peter shows up at the house of Mary, who was the mother of John Mark, no one believes that it's him. No one believes it's him at the door. Now, in case you don't know John Mark, he's the author of the Gospel of Mark. And his mother's house is most likely the central hub for the Christian church in Jerusalem. So some scholars believe this to be the same house that the disciples had the Lord's Supper. Even more scholars believe that this to be the same meeting place that we read about in Acts chapter 1, where the believers met together constantly in prayer following Jesus' ascension. So if an angel of the Lord has helped you escape from maximum security prison and then lets you into Jerusalem by opening one of the large iron gates and then suddenly leaves you standing in the middle of the street in the middle of the night, then Mary, the mother of John Mark, her house, that's where you go. And sure enough, Luke tells us that Mary's house is brimming with activity. The thought is, there is probably always activity at Mary's house. Luke tells us the church had gathered there to earnestly pray to God on Peter's behalf. They would already received a huge blow in the death of James. It was just tragic. And now Peter was going to be led out for a public execution the next day. It was too much. Can you imagine losing both James and Peter in such a short amount of time and in such a horrific way through execution? It had to feel a little bit like the existence of the early church was at stake here. The small band of followers was teetering on the edge. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, wrote this. The situation looked extremely bleak, even hopeless. There appeared to be no possibility of Peter's escape from death. What could this little community of Jesus in all of its powerlessness do do against the armed forces of Rome? What could they do? Well, they could do one of the primary things the church has been called to do. They could pray. They could pray. You know, it often takes disaster. To remind us of our primary calling, I can remember the night of 9 11 gathering together at a citywide prayer event with churches from all over Athens, Georgia. It's a wonderful time of prayer. Fortunately, it takes disaster to remind us sometimes of what we're called to do as a people. The power of Rome was the violent sword. The power of the church is earnest prayer. The Greek word here translated as earnestly, this is so cool. Y'all are going to like this, especially being here in the bluegrass. This word was also used to describe a horse made to go at full gallop. And so, it's a word that's used to describe the taut muscles of strenuous and sustained effort of a horse or of an athlete earnestly. It literally means fully stretched out. And so the image here is of one whose hands and body and soul and mind are are stretched out to God. I read Beth Moore one time describe this kind of prayer as smelling the carpet fibers. I liked how she referred to it as that because that's what she was talking about was was just laying out. Stretching out before the Lord in prayer. To pray earnestly is to be stretched out in that full gallop in prayer. And this is hilarious because Peter shows up at Mary's door where the church has gathered to pray in this way for him, but no one believes. No one believes it's him. That's how incredible of an escape this is. All night they've been praying, stretched out, full gallop, but the reality of Peter in the flesh standing at their door was beyond anything they could have asked for or imagined. It's just incredible. It's the great escape. And Luke, who never misses a detail in his storytelling, points out that this remarkable scene takes place during the Passover. That's, you don't want to just pass over that point. It's hard not to miss the irony of Peter's great escape happening during the celebration of Israel's great escape. If you recall... The Passover was a time for the people of Israel to remember their great escape. From the angel of death passed over their homes due to the blood of the lamb on their doorpost and their great escape from the violent hand of Pharaoh. As they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground and out of Egypt. It was a remarkable escape, and on, th- on the night of that celebration, Peter, too, escapes death and the violent hand of a tyrant. And it's just a remarkable story. It's a wonderful story. So this morning, what's the takeaway for us? What's the takeaway of this great narrative found here in Acts chapter twelve? We read about the church praying earnestly. That's been a good encouragement to us as a people, right? We want to fulfill that calling as a people. We want to be, we want to be people who who pray earnestly for one another. We don't want to wait for disaster to strike, to gather together and pray. We want to, that's where the power is for the church, is in earnest prayer. And so that's been a good encouragement to us. We see that God can do anything, right? We see that here in the story. We see that God has the power to do whatever he wants to do. That's a good takeaway. But here's a takeaway I want us to, just spend these last few minutes looking at this morning. As I thought about this story quite a bit this week, here's here's what I just wanted to share with you this morning. You know, Paul would write the church in Rome, these memorable words in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He would write, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all there, in Romans three twenty three. it includes me. It includes Karen. It includes my kids. It includes you. It includes your loved ones. It includes your neighbors, your classmates. It includes your coworkers. All of us have sinned. And if we're honest with ourselves, then we know this to be true. We can look at our lives and we see our mistakes. We see our failures. We can see how we've disobeyed, how we've deceived, how we've hurt people, how we've let people down. We get it. We all have sinned. Paul would then go on the right in this same letter to Rome. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, he would write, For the wages of our sin is death. Now, that term wages is a great word. All of us who have jobs, all of us who have worked, understand the language of receiving a wage. We receive a wage for our work. So we we get this word. We know what it means. And the wages, the payment that we receive for our sin is, is death. And here's the thing. The wage you receive is the same if you send only one time or if you send a million times. The wage is the same. Death. And as great as the escape was for the Israelites at the Passover, if you remember... They all died wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And as as great as the escape was for Peter in Jerusalem, he was eventually executed. In fact, history tells us he was crucified upside down. You know, I think the primary reason that we're fascinated by this story in Acts chapter 12, the main reason we love a good escape, the reason we can't keep our eyes off of people like Houdini who stare death in the face and escape it is because deep down, we want to escape death. But Big James didn't escape death. The 16 Roman soldiers who were in charge of guarding Peter did not escape death. In fact, at the end of chapter 12, in verses 21 through 23, we read that even the powerful King Herod did not escape death. We have all sinned. The wages of our sin is death. No one escapes death. But there's good news. Are you ready for this? Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, did not escape death. Jesus Christ did not escape death. And you might say, well, how's that good news? Well, this is where it really gets good. Because Jesus Christ did not escape death. He defeated it. You see, the Bible's solution to death is not escape, it's resurrection. And we have a book full of eyewitnesses who became martyrs because of what they saw. And what did they see? They did not witness a great escape. Instead, they saw a man rise from the dead. Firstborn of a new creation. They saw him ascend into the heavens where he reigns from the right hand of the Father. And the good news is that Jesus is now in a position where he can offer eternal life to us. God has made a way for all of us to be together with him in the new creation. And and here's the thing I want you to hear this morning. There's not an escape route. The only way to life is through death. Therefore, for us as Christ people, death is is no longer something we have to fear because it's no longer something we have to escape. Jesus has risen from the dead. And we know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us. Amen? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we do not have to spend our days trying to escape death. Instead, we can spend our days preparing to enjoy life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm just thankful so much that you have preserved down through time these manuscripts, these writings of Luke. Share with us Eyewitness testimony of the one who death could not hold. We're thankful, Lord, that we can be certain of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, as Keith mentioned earlier, May we live into that power, same power that raised him from the dead that now lives in us. May we live that out each and every day of our lives. Pray this in his name. Amen. This morning, if you are here and you have... Never put your faith in the one who rose from the dead. Then there's plenty reason for you to fear death. There's plenty reason for you to want to live your life in a way to escape death. So let me encourage you today to come. Put your faith in the one who rose from the dead, who defeated death, who took away its power and took away its sting. Come as we stand together and sing.